As the decade of the 1980s was drawing to a close, Osama bin Laden was a man without a cause. He and his organization had to find themselves a new jihad. This was a period of enormous geopolitical upheaval, some of which would have been unthinkable even as recently as a few years earlier. January 20th, 1989. George Herbert Walker Bush is sworn in as the 41st President of the United States, after serving eight years as Reagan's Vice President. February of 1989. The Soviet Union withdraws its last armored column from Kabul, Afghanistan, ending a nine-year military occupation. June of 1989, Chinese authorities crack down on dissidents in Tiananmen Square. November of 1989, East German authorities open up the Berlin Wall. January of 1990, Poland withdraws from the Warsaw Pact. February of 1990, Nelson Mandela is released after 27 years in prison. August of 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait. October of 1990, the reunification of Germany. November of 1990, Margaret Thatcher resigns as British Prime Minister after 11 years in power. June of 1991, Serbia and Croatia declare their independence from Yugoslavia. August of 1991, Ukraine and Belarus declare their independence from the Soviet Union. December of 1991, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. February of 1992, George H.W. Bush and Russian President Boris Yeltsin declare the Cold War over. December of 1992, the United States sends military forces to Somalia as part of a United Nations peacekeeping mission. All of these events happened during George H.W. Bush's one term in office. New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker puts his legacy into perspective. I think you can make the argument that Bush had in some ways the most consequential one-term presidency going back for generations. Uh, you know, he, he, he might not have been the person that America wanted to keep in office after 1992 because they wanted somebody more domestic focused, but the, the changes that happened on Bush's watch and with his, uh, you know, with his stewardship were transformative. They transformed the world. Suddenly, instead of this, you know, long twilight struggle for four decades uh, where we were at the edge of a nuclear uh, exchange almost at any moment, now we are heading into a period where we didn't have an enemy commensurate to our uh, to that threat. And we, we, we were suddenly able to, to, to dictate terms in a lot of ways to the, to the rest of the world and, and to become, uh, you know, uh, a more dominant force and, and hopefully a dominant force for good. So I think, you know, you look at Bush's, what happens on Bush's term, what he gets credit for, end of the Cold War, the reunification of Germany, the, the uh, rewriting of the rules of the Middle East to say that Assad and Hussein doesn't get to invade his smaller neighbors. Um, these are huge, huge changes. And I think that uh, you're right, that's been Bush's uh, legacy uh, after the heat of the moment faded and historians began to, to really evaluate it. Hello, I'm David DeSola, and this is the second episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. This episode will look back on the people and events in Osama bin Laden's life from 1989 through 1996. For Osama bin Laden and his band of Mujahideen, the events that had the most relevance were the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan and Iraq's invasion and occupation of Kuwait. For years, their mission in life had been to expel the Soviets. After an almost decade-long occupation and insurgency, the Soviets announced in April of 1988 that they were withdrawing from the country within nine months. 
While no one individual group of fighters can claim credit for the victory, that didn't stop Bin Laden and his fighters from rewriting history with themselves in the starring roles. In Al-Qaeda propaganda and mythology, Bin Laden and his Afghan fighters single-handedly defeated a superpower. Of course, their version of events conveniently omits the dwindling Soviet economy and years of covert military assistance to insurgents from foreign powers, including the United States, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. Later on, this mythology would justify Bin Laden's strategic decision to focus his new organization's efforts on its far enemy, the United States. According to Bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen, one of Bin Laden's initial post-Soviet political targets was Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. She told Bergen that she first heard of Bin Laden in 1989 when she discovered that he had been financing a no-confidence vote against her in the Pakistani parliament. Bergen writes that by the end of 1989, with the war over and having made himself an enemy of the government, there was little reason for Bin Laden to remain in Pakistan. He was 32 at the time. Once the war was over, according to the 9-11 Commission report, Bin Laden had sufficient stature among Islamic extremists by this point that he received an invitation to relocate to Sudan in the fall of 1989. The following year, Bin Laden moved back to Saudi Arabia. August 2nd, 1990. Iraqi military forces invade Kuwait, overthrow the government, and seize control of the capital. The emir and his family, along with numerous government and military officials, fled to neighboring Saudi Arabia. As a result of the invasion, Iraq was in control of approximately 20% of the world's oil reserves, and it gained a significant amount of coastline along the Persian Gulf. The next opportunity for Bin Laden and his Afghan veterans presented itself in the form of Saddam Hussein. Bin Laden hoped that the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait would be just the opportunity for his fighters to come in and save the day again, just as they thought they had in Afghanistan. Bin Laden offered the services of his Mujahideen veterans to the Saudi royal family to fight and expel the Iraqi occupiers. The Saudis turned down his offer and, much to Bin Laden's anger, invited the United States to base military personnel in the kingdom in anticipation for a potential conflict with Iraq. Though it wasn't viewed that way at the time, this is another key milestone on the journey that will ultimately lead to 9-11. Here's Jihadology.net founder Aaron Zellin. I think one of the things was what he was thinking about post the Afghan Soviet war and the potential for what they could do afterwards once he formed Al Qaeda. Um, originally, it was sort of perceived as trying to do something similar to what we saw in Afghanistan, where they'd sort of be these band of fighters that would go to these places that have been occupied by foreign forces. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he went to the Saudi government when uh, Saddam Hussein took over Kuwait and said, we'll come in here. We have this experience in Afghanistan. Obviously, we know that that didn't happen. Um, but that then sort of redirected him uh, towards his anger to Saudi Arabia and the United States. Former CIA analyst Paul Pillar agrees that the Saudi decision to allow American military personnel into the kingdom was a major factor in bin Laden's radicalization. What do you think was the tipping point in his life that, that made him decide to dedicate himself to terrorism full-time? The principal tipping point was what we called uh, Operation Desert Shield, the, the buildup of uh, U.S. forces in Saudi Arabia uh, beginning in 1990 in response to the Iraqi invasion of uh, and, and annexation of Kuwait. Bin Laden was greatly offended by this. He saw this as 
boots of the infidel soiling the ground on which the prophet walked. He went to the Saudi regime at the time and said, you know, rather than bringing the Americans in to try to protect us, uh, you know, let me work on trying to uh, uh, protect us and guard us against the Iraqis. And the regime would have nothing to do with that. And that's basically when uh, uh, he, he, he broke with any semblance of working with the Saudi regime and embarked on the path that uh, became his, his radical path. It, there, there was no question that the, the U.S. troop presence and big troop buildup 1990 to 1991 was, uh, was a turning point for him. August 6, 1990, then Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney travels to Saudi Arabia. He meets with King Fahd, who extends a formal invitation to American ground personnel and aircraft to come to the kingdom. August 7, 1990, the American military buildup in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia begins. Half a million soldiers are eventually deployed as part of Operation Desert Shield. The U.S.-Saudi relationship goes back to 1945, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt met with King Abdulaziz in the immediate aftermath of the Yalta Conference. The two men made an arrangement where in exchange for access to Saudi oil, the United States would provide security for the kingdom. That arrangement is still going strong today, more than 75 years later. Bin Laden and other Islamic clerics denounced the presence of Americans on Saudi soil, which is home to the two holiest sites in the Islamic religion, Mecca and Medina. Further complicating the matter was the fact that U.S. military personnel remained in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for years after the war ended. Omar bin Laden noted a further indignity about this arrangement, the presence of female coalition soldiers. He wrote, quote, At the first sight of a capable-looking female soldier, my father became the most outspoken opponent of the royal decision to allow Western armies into the kingdom, ranting, Women! Defending Saudi men! Bin Laden regarded the United States as an infidel, because it was not governed in a way consistent with Al-Qaeda's interpretation of Islam, as well as its support of the governments of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel, and the United Nations. In time, expelling the United States from Saudi Arabia became one of Al-Qaeda's primary objectives. The Saudi government was not happy about Osama bin Laden's political descent. They retaliated, first by seizing his passport. It was during this period that Diana Balsinger first hears of Osama bin Laden. The name Osama bin Laden meant nothing to me until 1990 when I was actually in Islamabad uh, tracking who was saying what about Desert Storm. Going back later, looking at some of bin Laden's statements, etc., some of them were familiar that they had been part of many, many statements that I had drawn on, on some of my reporting for the PDB, the National Intelligence Daily, uh, the NID, etc. Bin Laden in 1990, uh, going into Desert Storm in 1991, didn't stand out at that point. We were getting a lot at that point we were getting a lot of death threats. And a lot of them were from Pakistanis uh, involved in especially Jamaat Dulema Islam, uh, one of their political parties, uh, a lot of different Afghan Arabs 
This was showing up almost daily, especially in the Frontier Post, which was a fairly left-wing nationalist, uh, Islamist newspaper coming out of Peshawar. I specifically remember one religious leader who issued a fatwa that good Muslims should kill all the U.S. diplomats in Pakistan and marry by force all their wives. And frankly, we female diplomats had a good laugh trying to figure out where do we fit in in that scheme. Omar bin Laden wrote about an episode during this period that further contributed to the rupture of his father's relationship with the Saudi royal family. On an unspecified date, armed Saudi forces raided Osama bin Laden's farm outside of Jeddah. Not only was the farm bin Laden's personal place of rest and leisure, it had also become the home to a hundred of his former Mujahideen from Afghanistan. After the war, many of them were refused re-entry to their home countries, so bin Laden had made arrangements for them to receive Saudi visas and live on his property. The farmhands and Mujahideen had cooperated with authorities, but they were arrested and taken to jail. Omar bin Laden wrote, quote, My father was so furious that he could not speak. He called Crown Prince Abdullah, the future king of Saudi Arabia, who said he knew nothing of the raid and promised to investigate. The royal family eventually ordered the release of his farmhands in Mujahideen. Regardless, the damage was already done. Omar bin Laden wrote, quote, The sting of the incident had altered my father's feelings forever, starting him on a tragic road that would destroy many lives. Without a passport, bin Laden wasn't allowed to leave the country, but he convinced a Saudi prince that he had important business in Pakistan and promised to come straight back. Having gained permission, he immediately broke his word and fled the country. He never set foot in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia again for the remainder of his life. Having previously made arrangements to move his family, bin Laden relocated to Sudan at some point in late 1991. At that time, Al-Qaeda was thought to have as many as 2,000 members in Sudan, according to an estimate by Al-Qaeda defector Jamal al-Fadl. Within three years, bin Laden had set up a number of military camps in the northern part of the country. According to a declassified 1993 State Department document, quote, Among private donors to the new generation, Osama bin Laden is particularly famous for his religious zeal and financial largesse. A Saudi businessman living in Khartoum, Bin Laden uses his close ties to Sudanese National Islamic Front leader Hassan Tarabi to funnel support to Islamic militants operating in places as diverse as Yemen and the U.S. His joint ventures with Sudanese businessmen provide front companies for his exploits. Bin Laden's money has enabled hundreds of Arab veterans to return to safe havens and bases in Yemen and Sudan, where they are training new fighters. He also maintains financial and ideological ties to Sheikh Abdul Rahman, Sheikh Zadani and Hekmatyar. Until the secession of South Sudan in 2011, Sudan was the largest country on the African continent, accounting for approximately 8% of its total land area. The majority of the population is Sunni Muslim, and the two official languages are English and Arabic. June 30th, 1989. The National Islamic Front comes to power in Sudan after overthrowing the country's Prime Minister, Sadiq al-Mahdi. He had served in that position twice, from 1966 through 1967, and again from 1986 through 1989. 
Mahdi was also the great-grandson of Ahmed al-Mahdi, who kicked the British out of Sudan in the 19th century and established a theocratic state with its capital in Omdurman. It should be noted that as of this writing, Sadiq al-Mahdi was the last democratically elected leader of Sudan. He died from coronavirus in November of 2020. The 1989 coup was the product of joint cooperation between Islamist politicians and military officers. For much of the next three decades, the country would be run by former military officer Omar al-Bashir and Hassan al-Turabi, whom the International Crisis Group dubbed, quote, the intellectual architect of the National Islamic Front, and quote, the regime's ideologue-in-chief. Fearing a Western backlash to the Islamist-backed coup, the Associated Press reported that Turabi, quote, disguised his Islamic revolution as a military coup, even having himself briefly detained in an effort to conceal his role. As the country's attorney general in 1983, Tarabi had tried to impose Sharia law across the country, an effort which was resisted in the mostly Christian South. This was considered a, quote, major driver of the Sudanese government's war against the Sudan People's Liberation Army, which would last until 2005. In 1989, then-Foreign Minister Tarabi reached out to bin Laden and invited al-Qaeda to relocate to Sudan. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, bin Laden agreed to help Tarabi in an ongoing war against African Christian separatists in southern Sudan, and also to do some road building. Tarabi, in return, would let bin Laden use Sudan as a base for worldwide business operations and for preparations in jihad. The report also states that bin Laden agents began buying property in Sudan as early as 1990, while he was still back in Saudi Arabia. In time, the National Islamic Front would be succeeded by the National Congress Party, which is the Sudanese chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood. Tarabi also founded and ran the Popular Arab and Islamic Congress, an annual gathering of radical Islamist militants from around the world, representatives from al-Qaeda, the Palestine Liberation Organization, Hamas and Hezbollah were among the participants. This is the ideologically sympathetic political environment in Sudan when al-Qaeda relocates there in 1991. According to a University of Pittsburgh study, once he settled in the country, bin Laden established ties with as many as 20 different terrorist and insurgent groups and set up as many as 30 business operations that would sustain his organization. According to a court document, quote, these companies were operated to provide income to support al-Qaeda and to provide cover for the procurement of explosives, weapons, and chemicals, and for the travel of al-Qaeda operatives. At the time, the government of Sudan had opened its borders to seemingly every terrorist group in the Middle East and North Africa. Colin Clark, director of policy and research at the Safan Group, explains. I think at a certain point, it's uh, being a thorn in the side of the West it starts to drive policy. Um, certainly when bin Laden and those guys were in Sudan, there was a, an, you know, an economic incentive for the Sudanese government. Um, one presumes that they were getting something from that. But the other is kind of like with Gaddafi in Libya for a long time. Uh, if something is, you know, uh, angering the West, well, that's more of a reason to do it. And, and then I think, you know, to be fair, they didn't recognize the potential for blowback that would ultimately kind of evolve over time. During the early and mid-90s, Kofor Black was the CIA chief of station in Khartoum, the Sudanese capital. During this period, he was involved in the hunt for Carlos the Jackal, the Venezuelan-born international terrorist who was the world's most wanted fugitive during the 70s and 80s. He is currently serving three life sentences in a French prison. 
Black's assignment in Sudan also happened to overlap with bin Laden's time there. His military camps caught the attention of CIA officers in Khartoum. Working with other North African intelligence services, they were able to track bin Laden to the training camps, according to Steve Call's book Ghost Wars. Quote, they learned that bin Laden funded the camps and used them to house violent Egyptian, Algerian, Tunisian, and Palestinian jihadists. Increasingly, the Khartoum station cabled evidence to Langley that bin Laden had developed the beginnings of a multinational private army. He was a threat. In 1995, men in Sudan with ties to Osama bin Laden plotted to assassinate Kofor Black. Bin Laden's people had discovered that they were being surveilled and traced it back to Black, likely with help from Sudanese intelligence. They started running surveillance on him, which caught the attention of Black and his officers. Both sides were watching each other and engaged in an escalating series of near confrontations. According to Steve Call, Black informed the American ambassador in Khartoum, who complained to the Sudanese government. This ended the plot. Besides the military camps, Bin Laden also set up a series of intertwining businesses, NGOs, and charities for legitimate and illegitimate purposes. Through these companies, he would do everything from building a new highway connecting Khartoum to Port Sudan, to acquiring weapons, explosives, and equipment. During this period, Bin Laden begins forming a loose network with Islamic terror groups stretching from Morocco to Indonesia. Presumably as a way of ingratiating himself with the government in Khartoum, Bin Laden also invested in development projects in Sudan. Omar Bin Laden wrote, quote, Without the oil wealth of Saudi Arabia, he surmised that fertile areas of Sudan would be the solution to bring the African nation out of poverty. In fact, the land region south of Khartoum to the border of Ethiopia is popularly known as Sudan's breadbasket. That is the area where my father had numerous farms growing many different kinds of vegetables and sunflowers. He also became involved in construction work, farming, and horse breeding. The head of Sudan's intelligence service told the British newspaper The Guardian that bin Laden's initial investment in the country was worth approximately 10 million pounds, mostly in heavy machinery. The same report noted that after bin Laden had built an estimated 300 miles worth of roads for the government, the government reneged on bin Laden's 20 million pound fee. Instead, the government offered him a majority share ownership in a tannery worth an estimated 5 million pounds. The road project was never finished. What was the significance of bin Laden's years living in Sudan? Former CIA analyst Cynthia Storer explains. That was a time for them to sort of reestablish outside of Afghanistan, you know, no longer fighting the Afghan war, bring in more money, um, help with Tarabi's programs and uh, the connections with Iran. A lot of those things were happening in Sudan and Iraq, actually. Um, not, I'm not saying that they were close to Iran or close to Iraq or anything like that, but Tarabi was facilitating connections because he wanted everybody to work together in this Islamic international and so that gave Al-Qaeda a lot of connections. Maybe they started during the Afghan war, I don't know, but they certainly got them in Sudan. And that gives them access to the training camps in Lebanon and car bombing training and all kinds of you know, other stuff and money. And According to Al-Qaeda's structure and bylaws, yes, there is such a document, believe it or not, the organization had four general goals, which are quoted here from an English translation. One, to promote jihad awareness in the Islamic world. Two, to prepare and equip the caterers for the Islamic world through training and by participating in actual combat. Three, to support and sponsor the jihad movement as much as possible. Four, to coordinate jihad movements around the world in an effort to create a unified international jihad movement. The organization would be led by an emir, a prince, in this case Osama bin Laden, 
along with his deputy and the seven to ten members of the Majlis al-Shura, the Consultation Council, which serves as an advisory body to the Emir. The document lists everything from traits required in an Emir, to the responsibilities of the military committee, to who has control over the group's finances. Al-Qaeda had no shortage of young men who were willing to die for the cause, if Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is to be believed. After 9-11, he told Egyptian journalist Yazri Fauda, quote, We were never short of potential martyrs. Indeed, we have a department called the Department of Martyrs. Asked if the department was still active, KSM responded, quote, Yes, it is, and it always will be as long as we are in jihad against the infidels and the Zionists. We have scores of volunteers. Our problem at the time was to select suitable people who were familiar with the West. According to Bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen, while Al-Qaeda was based in Sudan during the early and mid-90s, it made alliances with other jihadist organizations from Egypt, Algeria, Libya, Yemen, and Syria. Despite theological differences, Al-Qaeda, a Sunni organization, sought alliances in Lebanon with Iran's proxy Hezbollah, which is Shia. Bergen reports that Al-Qaeda maintained a guest house in Lebanon and learned to bomb large buildings under Hezbollah. It was during this time in Sudan that bin Laden began planning and preparing for Al-Qaeda's first military operations. Bin Laden was also willing to consider cooperation with Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq during this period, according to the 9-11 Commission. This was in spite of political differences, including bin Laden's support for anti-Saddam Islamists in Kurdistan. According to Bruce Rydell at the Brookings Institution, quote, Osama bin Laden hated Saddam and his Ba'athist regime, but Saddam never took any action against bin Laden. Remember, it was just a few years earlier that bin Laden had offered his services to the Saudi royal family to kick the Iraqi army out of Kuwait. Bin Laden met in Khartoum with an Iraqi intelligence officer sometime in 1994 or 1995. Again, according to the 9-11 Commission, Bin Laden is, quote, said to have asked for space to set up training camps and assistance in procuring weapons, though there is no evidence of Iraq ever having done so. These mutual approaches, though murky and resulting in nothing, would be cited as evidence by the George W. Bush administration in making the case for the invasion of Iraq in 2003. But still, Osama bin Laden remained focused on the United States. After American military forces were deployed to Somalia in 1992, Al-Qaeda leaders put together a fatwa demanding their expulsion from the country. Historian Raymond Ibrahim defines a fatwa as, quote, a legal opinion or decree issued by a recognized authority and derived from Islam's roots of jurisprudence. Osama bin Laden's former mentor, Abdullah Azam, issued many fatwas, but he could do so credibly because of his theological education at Al-Azhar University. Osama bin Laden was not a religious scholar. He had studied economics and public administration as a university student, and his professional experience was in construction. Regardless of his lack of religious credentials, bin Laden worked with Al-Qaeda's fatwa committee from 1992 to 1993. According to a court document, they quote, disseminated fatwas to other members and associates of Al-Qaeda that the United States forces stationed in the Horn of Africa, including Somalia, should be attacked. The same document alleges that in 1993, a founding member of Al-Qaeda named Mamdou Mahmoud Salim, quote, lectured Al-Qaeda members that the United States forces do not belong on any Arab lands, and that the presence of the United Nations forces in Somalia was a reflection of the United States' plans to attack the Muslim world. According to FBI agent Ali Soufan's memoir, 
Yemen was in the middle of a civil war in December of 1992 when Al-Qaeda bombed the Gold Mohur Hotel in Aden. The intended targets were American military personnel known to stay there while on their way to Somalia to take part in Operation Restore Hope. They had already left, but two tourists were killed in the attack. This was Al-Qaeda's first attempt to attack the United States, though it was ultimately unsuccessful. January 20th, 1993. So help me God. Congratulations. William Jefferson Clinton is sworn in as the 42nd President of the United States. After the globally tumultuous single term of his predecessor, Clinton was elected on a domestic agenda focused on reinvigorating the American economy. Just 37 days into his presidency, a group of Brooklyn-based jihadists detonated a bomb in the parking garage beneath the World Trade Center. This attack will be examined in closer detail in the next episode. It wasn't an Al-Qaeda plot, but it was a hint of things to come. Beginning in late 1992 or early 1993, Mohammed Atef is said to have traveled to Somalia several times, quote, for the purpose of determining how best to cause violence to the United States and United Nations military forces stationed there. Within a few months, Atef and several other Al-Qaeda members were providing military training and assistance to Somali tribes that were opposed to the UN intervention in Somalia. A court document dates the beginning of Al-Qaeda's involvement in that country to the early spring of 1993. Abu Ubaidah al-Banshiri, the group's military commander, participated in a meeting with bin Laden in the spring of 1983 where it was decided that Al-Qaeda would target American soldiers in Somalia. He was one of eight men who provided military training to the Somalis. A former bin Laden bodyguard said al-Banshiri was the strongest advocate for the attacks on the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, though he would not live to partake in the operation. October 3, 1993. A team of U.S. Army Rangers and Delta Force operators were set to storm a building in the Somali capital city of Mogadishu. Inside was a gathering of the Habar Gadir clan's leaders. The clan was led by a local warlord named Mohammed Farah Adid, who was hostile to the United States. According to Mark Bowden's book, Black Hawk Down, the objective of the mission was to capture two ID lieutenants who controlled the city. If the mission succeeded, they would be arrested and imprisoned on an island off the Somali coastal city of Kismayo. The plan was for four army ranger teams to deploy by helicopter to the four corners of the block where the target building was located. The rangers would create a perimeter, while Delta Force stormed the building itself. Bowden wrote, quote, with rangers on all four corners, no one would enter the zone where Delta was working, and no one would leave. The operation would involve 19 aircraft, 12 vehicles, and 160 troops. It was supposed to be done in one hour. Local Somali militias armed with automatic weapons and rocket-propelled grenades had other ideas. It became the biggest firefight involving American soldiers since Hue in 1968. 18 hours later, two MH-60 Blackhawk helicopters had gone down in the city. 18 American soldiers were dead, 84 were wounded, and Black Hawk pilot Michael Durant was held captive for 11 days. Americans were horrified to see the images of a Somali mob posing with the body of an American soldier on the street. President Clinton ordered the withdrawal of American forces from the country by March 31, 1994. The Battle of Mogadishu would cast an enormous shadow over American military and foreign policy for years. Black Hawk Down author Mark Bowden puts it into perspective nearly three decades later. I think that the uh, task force ranger was given a mission that it accomplished, and it, it accomplished with a, what in military terms was a uh, relatively inconsequential 
loss. I mean, as Colin Powell said to me in Vietnam, if we lost 19 soldiers on an important mission, we wouldn't have even held a press conference to talk about it. This was an episode that really changed America's posture in the world uh, when from a military perspective, it was really, you know, the terrible cost of doing business. Here is a reaction from Prudence Bushnell, who was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs at the time. First of all, it was horrible. Um, secondly, I, I, it was at the time, there was absolutely no connection with Al-Qaeda or bin Laden. Um, the way I was looking at, excuse me, at Black Hawk Down in Somalia was from the prism of peacekeeping operations in Sub-Saharan Africa, which there were many. Um, the Clinton administration came in on the platform of the it's, it's the economy is stupid and they wanted to get out of peacekeeping in Africa as well as reduce the uh, percentage of U.S. participation in terms of finances and peacekeeping missions. So Somalia spelled and our reaction to withdraw our troops um, spelled trouble for all of the peacekeeping missions in sub-Saharan Africa because people kept saying, we do not want another Somalia. And in fact, that is why uh, we never did anything to intervene. And in fact, we proposed that the UN withdraw the peacekeepers from Rwanda once the anarchy began um, and the genocide began. Here is a reaction of retired Navy Commander Kirk Lippold, who was on active duty at the time of Black Hawk Down and would be the commanding officer of the USS Cole seven years later. I think what, what Black Hawk Down did in informing our foreign policy decisions is we once again, unfortunately, had to learn the lesson that if you are going to put our young men and women into harm's way, you really should be doing it with overwhelming firepower. And you should do it in a manner where, while you will always incur a degree of risk, no matter what you do, you want to have the ability that should a mission turn south, that you're going to have the ability to respond to it, to eliminate the threat, and to be able to get those young men and women that were in harm's way out as safely as possible. Al-Qaeda had its fingerprints on what would come to be known as the Black Hawk Down incident, having trained some of the Somali fighters involved in the battle. It should be noted that at this point, the United States government doesn't know that the organization even exists. Still, Al-Qaeda had struck against the United States for the first time, albeit through a proxy, and suffered no consequences. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, These trainers were later heard boasting that their assistance led to the October 1993 shootdown of two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters by members of a Somali militia group and to the subsequent withdrawal of U.S. forces in early 1994. Mark Bowden interviewed some of the Somali fighters. There was some suggestion, and I note it in the book, that uh, there were uh, people present in Mogadishu who were allied with um, larger um, movements in the region. Nobody ever said the words Al-Qaeda to me. But I think that uh, the... IDEED's forces who were firing rocket-propelled grenades at helicopters, uh, which are fairly crude weapons to uh, to try to shoot down a helicopter, 
uh, were using tactics that proved effective without any specific knowledge. It appeared as though the uh, people shooting those RPGs uh, had some knowledge about how to use them effectively against helicopters, which I don't think in Somalia they encountered many helicopters before American forces showed up. So I do think there was probably somebody advising them. Osama bin Laden interpreted these developments as proof of concept. Five years later, he told ABC News, quote, Our boys were shocked by the low morale of the American soldier, and they realized that the American soldier was just a paper tiger. His view of the United States as a paper tiger went back to Ronald Reagan's decision to withdraw American forces from Lebanon. October 23, 1983. American military personnel are in Beirut as part of a multinational peacekeeping operation in the middle of Lebanon's civil war. According to HistoryNet, their mission was, quote, to facilitate the withdrawal of foreign fighters from Lebanon and help restore the sovereignty of its government at a time when sectarian violence had riven the Mediterranean nation. They were housed inside an aviation administration building near Beirut International Airport. At 6.22 a.m. that morning, a 19-ton truck loaded with explosives entered a parking lot adjacent to the building where an estimated 350 American military personnel were sleeping at the time. The driver turned and drove the truck directly into the lobby of the building. Former journalist Richard Ernstberger Jr. described the subsequent detonation as, quote, so powerful that it lifted the building in the air, shearing off its steel-reinforced concrete support columns and collapsing the structure. 241 U.S. military personnel were killed that morning. 220 Marines, 18 sailors, and three soldiers. Another hundred were injured. It was the Marine Corps' worst loss in a single day since the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945. The FBI would later say it was the largest non-nuclear explosion since the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The attack was later attributed to Hezbollah, the Shia terrorist militia with ties to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Three and a half months after the attack, President Reagan ordered the withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Lebanon. New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker explains the reasoning behind Reagan's decision. The, the bombing of the barracks killed 240-some Marines just sort of made a lot of Americans feel like uh, it was a feckless uh, mission. Why were we there? What was, the, what was the purpose? We didn't give our people the right to really respond in a combat way. So what was the purpose of having it, them there? And so while Reagan was seen as a great hawk uh, in a military sense, in a geopolitical sense, he ended up pulling them out because it just uh, uh, it was just too much of a, uh, of a bloody mess for him. Here's Black Hawk Down author Mark Bowden. I think that the, the, there's no question, number one, that bin Laden was correct um, in assessing that the appetite in the United States for um, losing soldiers uh, in combat was, was very low and and that all you had to do to sort of turn around the United States from a, a military commitment was to inflict some pain. And, uh, and that was, there was truth to that. I think the deeper reality, which bin Laden discovered, is that once aroused, uh, this country is, is a very determined uh, uh, foe in the world. It's also worth noting that the United States was barely a decade removed from its quagmire in Vietnam at that point. 
July 11, 1994, Osama bin Laden co-founds the Advice and Reformation Committee, which a federal indictment alleged served as Al-Qaeda's London office. Its purpose was to, quote, publicize the statements of Osama bin Laden and to provide a cover for activity in support of Al-Qaeda's military activities, in addition to serving as, quote, a conduit for messages to Al-Qaeda's headquarters. Its manager, a Saudi named Khaled al-Fawaz, was known among Arab journalists as, quote, bin Laden's ambassador to Britain. In addition to being al-Qaeda's PR operation, the committee also released communiques critical of the Saudi royal family. This office, located in one of the cultural and media capitals of the world, would be crucial for when bin Laden began his media offensive a few years later. During that same year, four men armed with AK-47s tried to assassinate Osama bin Laden in Sudan. The only publicly available first-hand insider account of this assassination attempt comes from Omar bin Laden. He and his brothers were receiving their regularly scheduled private tutoring in a guest house on their father's property when the shots began. The gunmen were firing at the windows in the guest house. The teachers and students hid inside a smaller adjacent building, remaining quiet as the gunfire continued and eventually stopped. Omar speculated that his father was the intended target because he had abandoned his normal security routines. Quote, My father had felt so secure in Khartoum that he had discontinued his usual precautions of alternating his schedule, becoming a man of habit. Obviously, his enemies had discovered this fact. Normally, Osama would have been at the guest house while his sons were in class. What caused the delay that ultimately may have saved his life that day? This is one of the critical moments in the story in which history might have been altered. Believe it or not, Bin Laden was late that fateful day because of an argument with his oldest son Abdullah about a refrigerator. In living his austere lifestyle, Osama forbade his family from using the refrigerator in the kitchen, which made preserving fresh food difficult because of the Sudanese heat. Abdullah happened to pick that day to raise the issue with his father, leading to a prolonged argument between the two. The would-be assassins were waiting for Bin Laden to come to the guest house. When he failed to show up as expected, they assumed he was already in the building and opened fire on his younger sons and their teachers who were inside. All four assassins were captured or killed. The Sudanese government's investigation found that Saudi Arabia was responsible, though Omar Bin Laden was later skeptical of this finding. He noted that at that point, the Saudi royal family had been trying to convince Osama to come back to the kingdom. Quote, My father even confided that the royal family had offered him several high government positions. The only requirements were for him to cease his criticisms of the royal family, give up his militant activities, and return to live peacefully in the country of his birth. Bin Laden refused. Saudi princes and members of the Bin Laden family traveled to Sudan to persuade him to return on as many as nine separate occasions, and he still said no. In his book Ghost War, Steve Call wrote that the head of Saudi intelligence, Prince Turki al-Faisal, and other senior Saudi princes, quote, had trouble believing that Bin Laden was much of a threat to anyone. They saw him as a misguided rich kid, the black sheep of a prestigious family, a self-important and immature man who would likely be persuaded as he aged to find some sort of peaceful accommodation with his homeland. At one point, Osama was told to expect a telephone call from King Fahd himself. He refused to take the call, which Omar described as, quote, a great insult in our part of the world. No one refuses an order from the king. April 9, 1994. 
The Saudi government responds by revoking the citizenships of Osama bin Laden and his immediate family members, and more consequentially, by freezing his assets that were still in the kingdom. Omar bin Laden wrote, quote, Although he had some money in Sudan and a few other places, he lost access to his huge bank accounts in the kingdom. With limited funds, many things would change. Our homes in Jeddah and Medina and the Jeddah farm were all confiscated, including our personal belongings and even our horses and livestock. During bin Laden's years living in Sudan, the country was becoming a hotbed for terrorism. Al-Qaeda still maintained a guest house in the suburb of Peshawar, Pakistan during this time. Over in neighboring Afghanistan, it still operated several training camps. Islamist militias from all over the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia were converging on the region. Middle Eastern governments, many of them the home countries that were producing this new generation of militants, pressured the Pakistani government to crack down on Afghan Arabs, who would be expelled on periodic intervals. In May of 1993, Osama bin Laden personally paid the travel expenses of at least 300 Afghan militants so they could join him in Sudan. Within a few years, the government of Sudan had developed such a reputation for harboring terrorists, it was facing intense pressure from the United States and many African and Middle Eastern states to stop. Many of the groups receiving harbor in Sudan at the time were targeting the governments of Egypt, Libya, Syria, and Jordan. June 26, 1995, the tipping point for the Sudanese government's tolerance for the terrorists on its soil was a failed assassination attempt against Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak. He was in a motorcade driving from the airport to the Ethiopian capital city of Addis Ababa when gunmen opened fire on the presidential limousine. Two of Mubarak's bodyguards were killed, as were two of the six would-be assassins. Investigators traced the attempt to radical Egyptian groups in Sudan, Egyptian Islamic Jihad or the Islamic Group. First, a brief crash course in Egyptian Islamist terrorism is necessary to understand how things got to this point. The source for this material is Peter Bergen's analysis and retrospective on the life of the blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. A terrorist organization called Al-Jamaa al-Islamiyah, more commonly known in English as the Islamic Group, began in Egypt in 1970. It was behind a campaign of robbing and killing Coptic Christians. Omar Abdel Rahman, known colloquially as the Blind Sheikh, issued the fatwa giving his blessing to killing Christians, according to scholar Gillis Keppel. The Blind Sheikh will be covered in greater detail in the next episode. In 1973, an offshoot organization named Al-Jihad, also known in English as the Jihad Group, or Egyptian Islamic Jihad, was co-founded by a medical student named Ayman al-Zawahiri. The difference from the Islamic group was that the Jihad group would restrict its targets to government officials and buildings. Abdel Rahman, who had been critical of then-Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, issued a fatwa in 1980, saying that a heretical leader deserved to be killed by the faithful. Remember, because of the blind sheikh's academic credentials from Al-Azhar University, anything he said or wrote could be interpreted as having a religious seal of approval. This sets the stage for one of the most consequential events in the modern history of the Middle East, the assassination of Anwar Sadat. As a result of the Camp David Accords in 1978, Egypt and Israel signed a peace treaty. A year later, Israel would withdraw its troops and return the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, which it had occupied since the Six-Day War of 1967. 
In return, Egypt would allow Israeli ships to pass through the Suez Canal and the Straits of Tehran. Both countries would establish full diplomatic and economic relations with each other. Both Egypt and Israel would receive billions of dollars each in military aid from the United States. This military aid continues more than four decades later. But perhaps the most consequential aspect of this peace treaty is that Egypt became the first Arab nation to recognize the state of Israel. Arabs throughout the Middle East were furious at Sadat. The Palestine Liberation Organization, which claimed to speak for the Palestinian people, rejected the deal. The Arab League suspended Egypt's membership in the organization for a decade. The Islamist radicals in Egypt could never accept the deal either. October 6, 1981. President Sadat is reviewing Egyptian troops during a military parade on the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. A group of terrorists from the organization Takfir Wal Hajira had infiltrated the parade dressed in military uniforms. They were led by an Egyptian army lieutenant named Khalid Islambouli. They stopped in front of the review stand, opened fire, and threw grenades at the officials sitting there. Eleven people were killed, including President Sadat, who was shot four times and died two hours later. One of the survivors of the assassination plot was Sadat's vice president, Hosni Mubarak. An estimated 300 Islamists from several organizations, including the Blind Sheikh and Ayman al-Zawahiri, were rounded up and arrested in the aftermath of the assassination. Some were executed, others were let go. Abdel Rahman was tried and acquitted on charges that he was involved in the assassination because of his fatwa. His defense lawyer successfully argued that because the Sheikh had not explicitly mentioned Sadat by name, he was at most tangential to the plot. Fast forward to 1995. According to Omar bin Laden, one of the assassins involved in the plot against Mubarak was Shauki al-Islambouli, the younger brother of the Egyptian army officer who led the Sadat assassination 14 years earlier. Depending on which source you read, there is contradictory evidence of which group the would-be assassins were part of. Regardless, both organizations would formally merge with Al-Qaeda in the future. Omar bin Laden writes that the assassins were members of Al-Jamaa al-Islamiyah. Omar Abdul Rahman was still their spiritual leader. However, at this point, he was on trial in federal court for his role in the Landmarks plot, which will be discussed in the next episode. It's worth noting that among the charges he and his co-defendants were facing was conspiring to assassinate President Mubarak during a planned visit to New York City in 1993. According to the 9-11 Commission, the assassins were members of Egyptian Islamic group and had been sheltered in Sudan, and they had received assistance from bin Laden. The Sudanese government refused to extradite three suspects involved in the plot, resulting in a United Nations Security Council resolution criticizing the government in Khartoum and economic sanctions. The Sudanese government also told bin Laden that it intended to yield to Libya's demands to stop sheltering its enemies. According to the 9-11 Commission, bin Laden was forced to tell the Libyans in his ranks that he could no longer protect them and that they should leave the country. Libyan members of Al-Qaeda, as well as members of the Islamic Army Shura, were outraged and subsequently renounced all ties to bin Laden. August 1995, a little more than a year after refusing to take his phone call, Osama bin Laden writes an open letter to King Fahd of Saudi Arabia calling on a campaign of guerrilla attacks to drive American military forces out of the kingdom. Meanwhile, economic pressures begin taking their toll on the Sudanese government. Bin Laden also began experiencing financial strain. 
due to a combination of sanctions and the global economy of the day. This was the beginning of the end of Bin Laden's time in Sudan. At that point, Colin Clark notes that any benefits from allowing terrorists on Sudanese soil took a backseat to basic economic and geopolitical realities. Right, when, when a, a guest becomes no longer worth the hassle, then the guest is asked to leave politely, or in some cases, kicked out. Sudanese officials began reaching out to their foreign counterparts to ask what they could do to ease the sanctions. In secret negotiations with the Saudis, the Sudanese offered to expel Bin Laden to the kingdom in exchange for a pardon on his behalf. The Saudis rejected the deal. Bin Laden had already been stripped of his citizenship, and they did not want him back on their soil. Bin Laden's safety was also becoming a problem. Recall that he had already survived one assassination attempt in 1994. According to the 9-11 Commission, Sudanese Minister of Defense Fatih Erwa has claimed that his government offered to hand Osama Bin Laden over to the United States. This claim has been somewhat controversial and merits further scrutiny. The Commission found, quote, no credible evidence that this had happened. Timothy Carney, the U.S. ambassador to Sudan at the time was encouraging the expulsion of Bin Laden to Saudi Arabia. The commission also notes Ambassador Carney had, quote, no legal basis to ask for more from the Sudanese since, at the time, there was no indictment outstanding. The Washington Post published the contents of a two-page CAA memo that was hand-delivered by agency operatives to Defense Minister Erwa during a secret meeting at a Washington, D.C. area hotel on March 8, 1996. The document, titled, quote, Measures Sudan Can Take to Improve Relations with the United States, mentions Bin Laden in one of its six points. Quote, Provide us with names, dates of arrival, departure, and destination, and passport data on Mujahideen that Osama Bin Laden has brought into Sudan. Quote, Since mid-1994, your government has allowed more than 200 of Bin Laden's operatives into Sudan. That's it. The memo does not mention anything about extraditing bin Laden to the United States or anywhere else. The only other government official to mention the subject on the record is Dr. Gutbi El Mahdi, the head of Sudan's intelligence service. But even he noted the lack of an indictment in the United States, telling the British newspaper The Guardian in October of 2001, quote, If America had had something against him, we would have looked at extraditing him to America, but they had not. It's worth noting that this interview took place after 9-11, when Bin Laden was the most wanted man in the world. Federal prosecutors would later get a sealed indictment against Bin Laden in June of 1998, which will be covered in a future episode. Ultimately, it was time for him to leave. Osama Bin Laden returned to Afghanistan on May 19, 1996, according to the 9-11 Commission. Omar Bin Laden was the only relative that was with him on that flight and he wrote a tense account of it in his memoir. According to him, there were eight other male passengers on the flight, seven of whom worked for his father. Among them were Saif al-Adil, Bin Laden's head of security, and Mohammed Atef, who Omar described as his father's best friend. They were also accompanied by a Sudanese diplomat named Mohammed Ibrahim. At one point, the flight entered Saudi airspace. Bin Laden turned to address everyone on board, quote, let there be no more talk. Pray to God in silence until we leave Saudi airspace. When the plane cleared Saudi Arabia, Bin Laden addressed Omar, quote, My son, I was praying that the Saudis did not know I was on this plane. Had they known I was crossing their territory, they would have ordered their jets to shoot us down. They probably thought a Sudanese diplomat was on board. 
The flight landed in Shiraz, Iran for a refueling stop. At that point, bin Laden told his son, quote, Omar, the Iranians do not know there are bin Ladens on this plane. Do not speak a word. Iranian security guards wanted to inspect the plane. The Sudanese diplomat Mohammed Ibrahim spoke with them. He convinced them that they were important businessmen on board who had no intention of setting foot on Iranian territory, except for refueling. The security guards bought the story and did not board the plane. While this discussion was ongoing, Bin Laden, Atef, and Adel had their weapons in hand ready to fire if the situation went bad. His job done, Ibrahim said his farewells to Bin Laden and got off the plane. He would return to Khartoum on his own on a commercial flight. The plane's next and final stop would be Jalalabad, a city in eastern Afghanistan roughly halfway between Kabul to the west and Peshawar to the east. They were greeted at the airport by Mullah Nurallah, a Pashtun leader of Jalalabad and an old friend of Osama bin Laden's from the war against the Soviets. Nurallah promised to guarantee Osama's safety and that of his family, and that they would always have a home in Afghanistan. Nurallah gave bin Laden what Omar described as, quote, a very large tract of land in Jalalabad to build himself a compound. He wasn't done yet, though. Nurallah also gave him an entire mountain in Tora Bora. Guess which one Osama would pick to be his new home? Osama bin Laden's flight to Afghanistan did not happen by itself in a vacuum. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, it is unlikely that bin Laden could have returned to Afghanistan had Pakistan disapproved. The Pakistani military intelligence service probably had advanced knowledge of his coming, and its officers may have facilitated his travel. Al-Qaeda would suffer a major loss just two days after bin Laden's return to Afghanistan. May 21, 1996, the MV Bukoba, a ferry transporting passengers across Lake Victoria, hit a rock, capsized, and sank in 90 feet of water. It happened an estimated 30 miles northwest of the Tanzanian lake port of Mwanza. The ship was overcrowded, according to an Associated Press report of the accident. 894 people died in what was one of the worst ferry disasters in history. One of the victims was Abu Ubaidah al-Banshiri, Al-Qaeda's founding military commander. Al-Qaeda sent people over to look into it. Here's former CTC analyst Cynthia Storer. They certainly suspected foul play and investigated themselves and determined that there wasn't any foul play. It was just a stupid ferry accident. Um, now, whether that delayed any of their plans in Africa, I don't know. According to the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, Manchuri was a veteran with experience fighting against the Soviets, including at the Battle of Jaji in 1987. He is described as, quote, intimately involved in Al-Qaeda's expansion to the African continent, as well as the operational planning of their activities there. According to the 9-11 Commission, Banchiri had stayed behind in Kenya to, quote, oversee the training and weapons shipments of the cell set up some four years earlier. Al-Banchiri would be succeeded as military commander by Mohammed Atef. Like his predecessor, Atef was an Egyptian former police officer and a veteran of the Afghan Jihad. He would hold this role for the next five years. At around the same time bin Laden was returning to Afghanistan, a new fundamentalist Islamist movement was gradually expanding across the country. Like many elements of this story, the Taliban's emergence happens as a consequence of the nine-year war in Afghanistan. Diana Balsinger worked as a political officer at the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad from 1990 to 1992. One of my usual contacts was Samuel Huck, the head of the Dara Lalu Madrasa that the Taliban came out of. And uh, the thing that I have 
to make absolutely clear. The last thing I want to do here is feed the rumors of the CIA uh, involved in founding the Taliban, et cetera. No, this is uh, four to six years before the Taliban was founded. And I was a State Department official meeting at that time a 100% legal religious set of religious officials. But what it did give is some tremendous insight into the impact of the Afghan war on Pakistani stability, especially as we're going into the uh, Desert Storm era. And when Desert Storm began, I did a stint of about five, six months Peter, Ambassador Peter Thompson, who had been, uh, who was the president's special envoy to the Afghan resistance. We didn't yet have an embassy in Kabul. It was still under the communist occupation. So Ambassador Thompson worked out of Washington and Islamabad. His deputy had moved on. So I filled that vacancy through the negotiations with the Mujahideen to bring them into the Desert Storm Coalition. And then my final year in Islamabad was pretty much documenting this uh, increasing radicalization of these Islamic parties and of the Afghan Arabs. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, the Taliban formed in the early 90s from a combination of Afghan Mujahideen and younger Pashtun tribesmen who studied in Pakistani madrasas. PBS Frontline defines a madrasa as an Islamic religious school. It also notes, quote, Many of the Taliban were educated in Saudi-financed madrasas in Pakistan that teach Wahhabism, a particularly austere and rigid form of Islam, which is rooted in Saudi Arabia. Around the world, Saudi wealth and charities contributed to an explosive growth of madrasas during the Afghan Jihad against the Soviets. During that war, a new kind of madrasa emerged in the Pakistan-Afghanistan region, not so much concerned about scholarship as making war on infidels. Pashtuns are a plural majority in Afghanistan and a major ethnic group in the north and western parts of Pakistan. Taliban is the Pashto word for student. This movement, which began in a madrasa in Pakistan, would take over Afghanistan in just a few short years. They went from entering Kandahar in November of 1994 to taking the capital city of Kabul in September of 1996. The Taliban would declare Afghanistan an Islamic emirate, with Mullah Muhammad Omar, a cleric and a veteran of the war against the Soviets, as the head of state. Within five years, the Taliban would control as much as 90% of the country. How were they able to do it? According to Sufan Group Policy Director Colin Clark, it came down to one basic issue, security. To follow up on, on the Taliban, what was their appeal once they took over Afghanistan? Because at that point, you know, those, the Soviets had left for what, what, six or seven years, and it's, it's basically a failed state, right? Their appeal was they were basically, you know, uh, law and order, right? So they hung, uh, you know, People that were considered to be, like I was, I forget what the exact story was. Uh, people that a, a commander had raped a girl, and so the Taliban hunted them down and hung them from the barrel of a tank, right? And so it was about getting justice, 
And in a country that had experienced civil war um, and insurgency for so many years, people were looking for uh, an entity that could bring stability. And even though the Taliban was quite draconian in its ideology, it, it did promise to bring stability and, and people rallied behind that. Ultimately, by the time bin Laden returns to Afghanistan, Clark says he needs the Taliban more than they needed him. People talk about al-Qaeda like it was the, the dominant figure in the relationship, but uh, I think al-Qaeda really needed the Taliban more. They needed a sanctuary. They needed a safe haven. And, you know, they got that in, in Afghanistan. I don't think it was an equal relationship either. And, and that's evidenced by the fact that bin Laden didn't share his plans about 9-11 with, with the Taliban, right? You'd think that if you were working hand in glove with uh, a, a host, that they would be clued in on it. But, you know, as most people know, that that wouldn't have been something that, uh, you know, the Taliban likely would have signed off on because they lost their sanctuary. I mean, for the, for the Taliban, 9-11 was a terrible event, even though they didn't, you know, even though they ultimately refused to hand bin Laden back over, that really you know, was the end of their run. This view is supported by the 9-11 Commission report, which states, quote, Bin Laden was in his weakest position since his early days in the war against the Soviet Union. The Sudanese government had canceled the registrations of the main business enterprises he had set up there and then put some of them up for public sale. According to a senior al-Qaeda detainee, the government of Sudan seized everything bin Laden had possessed there. There is also evidence supporting the opinion that bin Laden's personal finances were almost wiped out by the time he returned to Afghanistan. According to a report in The Guardian, bin Laden's financial losses in Sudan totaled 30 million pounds. The story quotes the head of Sudanese intelligence, saying, quote, I would say that by the time he went to Afghanistan, he was totally broke. He didn't have anything. Former CIA analyst Michael Scheuer wrote that based on his considerable life experience up to that point, Osama bin Laden was a man of tough character who was not easily fooled. However, his Achilles heel was, quote, a still largely unshaken faith in the altruism of Islamic scholars. In his biography of Osama bin Laden, Scheuer writes that bin Laden would not be the last person to be made a fool of by Hassan al-Tarabi, the king's college and Sorbonne-educated regime ideologue. He spoke of expanding Islam through the Horn of Africa and eventually the rest of the world. Scheuer writes, quote, This was music to bin Laden's ears, of course, and it at least temporarily deafened him to the reality that Al-Tarabi was a lying, self-serving windbag who saw in bin Laden what some observers called a mobile emergency bank. When bin Laden arrived in Sudan, Tarabi hosted a reception in his honor and named him a member and advisor to the National Islamic Front. Bin Laden reciprocated with a $5 million donation to the party. He would later donate an additional $2 million to the NIF to care for the Afghan Arabs who were already living in Sudan. Bin Laden would take on financial liabilities that really should have been the responsibility of the Sudanese government. He guaranteed loans for emergency imports. He bought the country's entire cotton crop with cash, which he would later hope to recover by selling it abroad and by taking on major infrastructure spending and construction projects. He received land grants in eastern Sudan from the government as compensation for some of his work. One of them was as much as a million acres. But even after all that he had given of his personal fortune and resources, bin Laden was asked to leave the country. Scheuer wrote, quote, He sold his businesses, land, houses, and construction and agricultural machinery at fire sale rates or simply abandoned them. There is moreover no evidence that his loans to Al-Turabi's regime were repaid. 
According to journalist Jonathan Randall, quote, a Sudanese acquaintance confided that early on Tarabi had needed the money and was willing to be bored by Osama. When bin Laden had served his purpose and it was time for the Sudanese to get rid of him, Al-Tarabi, quote, lost no time in confiscating Osama's holdings and mocked him as a fool, Jonathan Randall wrote in his biography, Osama, the making of a terrorist. Tarabi told Randall on the record, quote, all Osama could say was jihad, jihad, jihad. Once the relationship between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban was cemented, the benefits from Al-Qaeda's perspective were almost immediate. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, Bin Laden appeared to have in Afghanistan a freedom of movement that he had lacked in Sudan. Al-Qaeda members could travel freely within the country, enter and exit it without visas or any immigration procedures, purchase and import vehicles and weapons, and enjoy the use of official Afghan Ministry of Defense license plates. Al-Qaeda also used the Afghan state-owned Ariana Airlines to courier money into the country. The report continues, quote, The Taliban seemed to open the doors to all who wanted to come to Afghanistan to train in the camps. The alliance with the Taliban provided Al-Qaeda a sanctuary in which to train and indoctrinate fighters and terrorists, import weapons, forge ties with other jihad groups and leaders, and plot and staff terror schemes. During his years in Sudan, bin Laden had maintained guest houses and camps in Afghanistan and Pakistan. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, these were part of a larger network used by diverse organizations for recruiting and training fighters for Islamic insurgencies in such places as Tajikistan, Kashmir, and Chechnya. The 9-11 Commission report says that it was Pakistani intelligence officers who introduced bin Laden to Taliban leaders in order to help him get control of the training camps in the area near coast. The hope was that in return, bin Laden would make the camps available to train Kashmiri militants. It also cites a U.S. intelligence estimate that between 10 and 20,000 fighters went through bin Laden's camps between his return in 1996 and 9-11. However, the report notes, quote, thousands flowed through the camps, but no more than a few hundred seemed to have become Al-Qaeda members. The new sanctuary in Afghanistan gave Al-Qaeda the freedom and the space to plan and execute its attacks against the United States for the next five years. In doing so, it would redefine what a non-state actor could accomplish in a non-governed space. From this space over the next several years, Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda was able to attract new talent from around the world, some of which would take part in the biggest operation in Al-Qaeda's history. Among them were Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Mohammed Atta. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at the jihadist cell in Brooklyn that was responsible for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and its influential leader, the Blind Sheikh. It will also go into the lives of Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the uncle-nephew duo that took radical Islamic terrorism to unprecedented new heights. I'm David Asula. Thank you for listening. <laughs>